I know, I know all about writing papers, and you know the worst thing about writing a paper is when you've got that blank page in front of you. The first word is always the worst, or blank computer screen now, I suppose, showing my age. So you've got to write a paper, and your mind's blank, and the paper's blank. Where do you start? And by the grace of God, the lines of a very well-known hymn that you all know entered my head. So I began the paper, which is you know, why I want to become a, a Catholic, with the lines of this hymn, which you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to sing, because my singing voice is not good. That's the good news. The bad news is you will hear me sing later in the talk, but not, I'm not going to ruin this wonderful hymn. So the opening lines that sprang into my mind by the grace of God were these, which we all know. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And I hope over the next 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes as I unfold my story, you'll see how appropriate the lines of that hymn are to my own journey to Christ. Um, Not least, of course, because they were written, of course, by John Newton who prior to his own conversion was a slave trader, bearing in mind my own racism uh, as a very, very appropriate connection there. So as I said, I was raised in a secular culture. My parents never went to church. We never prayed. I mean, if you cornered them and asked them point blank, are you a Christian? They would have thought it was a weird question, but then answered rather awkwardly, yes. Um, and certainly, you know, at Christmas time, we like to ha- hear carols on the TV, but we certainly had no intention to go to church. And then, at my high school, I went to a very, very bad high school, and the motto of the high school summed it up, uh, because imagine this is now my school high school, my high school aud- auditorium back in England, and instead of a cross there, you've got in great big letters the school motto. And the school motto is, this above all, to thine own self be true. William Shakespeare. Now I thought, my father always taught me to revere William Shakespeare as the greatest Englishman who ever lived. I don't think he's the greatest Englishman that ever lived now. There are plenty of English saints that I revere more. This is a bit too high. Can you still hear me? Okay, Um, but uh, certainly the greatest English writer ever, arguably the greatest writer ever, certainly someone that anybody should take seriously. So I was taught to revere William Shakespeare, this above all, to our own self be true, William Shakespeare. And I took that as my own personal motto, and it stayed with me for years and years, for all these dark years, as my own personal motto. Because, of course, that actually, that line from Hamlet, is relativism. That above all else, be true to yourself. In other words, that really, truth is in you. And as long as you're true to you, it doesn't really matter about anything else. As long as you're true to yourself, nothing else matters. So I took that as my personal motto, and it got me into all sorts of trouble. What I didn't realize then 
which I realize now, was that my school was ignorant of William Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare never said those words. Now, he wrote those words, but those words were said by Polonius, a character in Hamlet who is a blithering idiot. <laughs> and those, that line is quoted at the end of Polonius' advice to his son. His son's about to go off to college in Paris. So he thought, I'm, I'm, to be a good father now, this is the right time to give him my philosophy of life, my pep talk. So he gives him a list of what, what he needs to do to be a man, what really matters in life. And so this, this speech, one of the most famous speeches in Shakespeare, you know, Polonius' advice to his son Laertes, wear the right clothes, pick the right arguments, know when to speak up, know when to, when to be quiet, never lend money, uh, never borrow money, make the right friends, but above all, be true to yourself. No mention of God, no mention of virtue, no mention of laying down your life for the other, no mention of love, in other words. Now, Polonius, in following that advice, his own advice, his own philosophy, gets himself killed in the play. Laertes, in following that advice, becomes a, a, a naive dupe of the wicked King Claudius and gets himself killed, killing Hamlet in the process. And Ophelia, Hamlet's beloved, who's in love with Hamlet, is nonetheless forced by her father, against her will, to spy on the man she loves. And that drives her mad, and she commits suicide. So what does Shakespeare tell us about this above all to thine own self be true? What does Shakespeare tell us about relativism? That it's deadly. That it's at the root of the culture of death. But I didn't know any of that then. These were all things I discovered later. My school was clearly ignorant and fed that ignorance to me. And I went on, and at the age of 15, I joined a white supremacist organization in England called the National Front. So I was 15 years old. Now, from the perspective, from a Christian perspective, I can and should be condemned for that decision. But from a relativist perspective, I was being true to myself. My truth is my truth, your truth is your truth, never the twain shall meet, to leave each other alone. So I joined the National Front at the age of 15. The National Front was a militant organization and a violent organization. Amongst its policies, and I mean, these are word for word from the party's manifesto a long time ago now, 1970s, the compulsory repatriation of all non-whites to their lands of ethnic origin. Now think about that. Not just making the immigrants go home, but third generation. Your grandparent. One of your grandparents was from Jamaica or India. Then you would be sent back to Jamaica or India. Lands of ethnic origin. I don't know where that's supposed to end because presumably all the Anglo-Saxons have to go back to Germany at some point. 
And so there's a lot of violence. And at the age of 16, I, I started editing my first newspaper, Bulldog, the newspaper of the Young National Front. I became the youngest ever member of the NF's governing body and the chairman of the Young National Front, the youth movement. And if that wasn't enough, I also got very heavily involved in the violence in Northern Ireland. Now, the older members of the audience here will remember the Troubles, as they were called, the Troubles in Northern Ireland, that lasted from the late 1960s to the late 1990s, for 30 years almost, uh, during which time, uh, I think almost 4,000 people were killed, certainly well over 3,000 people. Now, I should say 3,500 to, to take a medium average there, uh, of how many people were killed? 3,500 people. Perhaps doesn't sound all that much. But the population of Northern Ireland is one and a half million. The population in the United States is 300 million, or thereabouts. So you have to multiply, math is not my subject, that's why I teach literature, so expect me to get this wrong. But you'd have to multiply 3,500 by 200 to make the equivalent to the United States, which would be, what would it be? <laughs> 700,000 700, people killed. So there was nobody in Northern Ireland didn't know somebody who'd been killed. And I was brought up to be very anti-Catholic, and the IRA, the so-called Catholic side in that, in that uh, dispute, were planting bombs in London and in England, killing people. And being a young hothead, as you obviously know already from what I've said, I was, I took the other extreme. Well, the IRA want to kill my people, I want to kill them. So I got very heavily involved in the, in the loyalist, that's the opposite side, so-called Protestant side of the dispute in Northern Ireland. Now, I keep saying so-called, because this is sectarian warfare, but it was nothing to do with religion. And the best way I can explain it, that the pure tribalism, because it's tribal, not religious, is by telling a joke. And the joke is, for the sake of it, let's say an American. An American is walking through Belfast in 1975, at the height of the Troubles. And he's in the city centre, which is relatively safe as long as a bomb doesn't go off. But then, not paying attention, gets himself lost. Wanders into a neighbourhood, doesn't look to be a good neighbourhood, he knows about the troubles, and he's getting a little bit scared. And then his worst fears materialise, because out of the shadows comes this gang of rather menacing-looking youths. And they approach him. And they say, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And he thinks for a moment. And he thinks, this is actually a very dangerous question. It's like playing Russian roulette. I give the wrong answer, I could be dead. Or like tossing a coin. So he thinks for a moment and he says, you know, I'm an atheist. Then he's feeling rather smug. That was a clever answer. That got me out of a rather sticky situation. And these thugs look at each other and they scratch their heads. And they say, yes, 
but are you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist? <laughs> and the point is, well, it's funny, but it's true, because I was not a Christian. I was just anti-Catholic. So I was an agnostic, racist, neo-Nazi, but I was anti-Catholic. So therefore I joined the Protestant side. I had a friend, and then, so we got involved, I joined an organization called the Orange Order. The Orange Order is a secret society. Again, so-called Protestant. It only exists to hate Catholics. I was allowed in. I'd never been to church in my life, except for weddings. I never prayed. But, you know, I was anti-Catholic. So I was a Protestant agnostic. My, I had a friend of mine who was a militant atheist. But he also hated Catholics. So he joined. So we had a Protestant agnostic and a Protestant atheist. And during the lodge meeting, when they were reading from Scripture, as part of the ritual, he and I would look at each other surreptitiously and smirk cynically at this Christian nonsense. I also uh, became involved with two of the terrorist organizations in Northern Ireland, the sort of the so-called Protestant equivalent of the so-called Catholic IRA. One was the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association, and the other was the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, which between them killed probably, well, I don't know, certainly hundreds and hundreds of people during the Troubles. I was in a pub in well, not pub, actually, I was at a drinking club in Northern Ireland. I crossed Northern Ireland all the time for about a 10-year period, involved with, with, with these organizations. And I was in a drinking club just north of Belfast. And one of the ways that the, the terrorist organizations made money, was one way was bank robberies, but the other way, which was less dangerous, was opening drinking clubs, all of the profits of which went to the terrorist organizations. So I was in a UVF club just north of Belfast, listening to the anti-Catholic music, having a few too many beers, uh, and enjoying myself. When I got a tap on the shoulder, and someone said to me, you want it outside. Now, if you're in a private club run by a terrorist organization. They're not words you want to hear. And I'm thinking, okay, I've been in Northern Ireland for several days. What have I done? What, I, what could I have possibly done that's upset somebody? But anyway, I didn't have much choice. I went outside, and again, my fears were accentuated by the fact I was, I was faced with three men. And as some of you may know, if you've studied these things, three is the magic number for a terrorist cell. Or as the loyalists and uh, the, the Republicans in Northern Ireland preferred, active service unit. Um, so I thought, all right, this is not good. And so the leader of that group of three, they were indeed a terrorist cell of the UVF, but to my great relief, they weren't annoyed with me. On the contrary, they were disillusioned with the leadership of the UVF. Um, they didn't think the UVF were militant enough. So they wanted to put themselves under my personal command. I was the chairman of the Young National Front, and they wanted to, make, they wanted to become the paramilitary wing, to use their terminology, the terrorist wing of the YNF, of the Young National Front, 
and they would uh, take their orders directly from me as their commander-in-chief and they would kill whoever I wanted killed. Now, by the grace of God, although I didn't have seen it as such in those days, I've never wanted to have anybody killed. Um, but I didn't want to upset them either. So, I, a, bit like that, a bit like that American in the joke, except I'm now in real, real life scenario here. I don't want to tell them to go away because I don't want to upset them. But neither do I want to sort of say, yeah, let's do it. They said, come and have a look at our arsenal of weapons. I said, no, I believe you, because I did. So I said, great idea, we need to do something about this, and um, uh, once I got back to England with the Irish Sea between me and them, I did not get back in touch. Within a year, the leader, the leader of that group, um, the one who did the talking, uh, was sentenced to life in prison for shooting dead the mother of an IRA man on her doorstep. Now, I don't think he was aiming to kill the mother. I think that, this is the way I'm guessing things happened, is that he, that was where the IRA man lived. And it's probably in a very IRA part of, of town. He was probably very scared. He knew how to get in and out quickly. Um, and he basically rang the doorbell. And sufficiently frightened, he basically shot whoever opened the door. That's what I'm guessing happened. And as if my involvement in neo-Nazi organizations in England, the National Front, and terrorist organizations such as the UDA and UVF, and secret societies such as the Orange Order wasn't enough, I was also very heavily involved with neo-fascist organizations in Europe, particularly with an Italian organization called Terza Posizione, uh, third position, who were alleged to have been responsible for the bombing of Bologna railway station uh, in northern Italy that killed about 150 people. In the wake of that um, terrorist attack, arrest warrants were put out for the leaders of this organization and they fled the country before they could be arrested, smuggled themselves across Europe, and then we found safe houses for them in England until things had calmed down a bit. I became very close friends with the leader of that organization, someone called Roberto Fiore, and if you actually want to look, look him up, believe it or not, he's now a member of the European Parliament. Um, I think to be fair to him, I don't think he's quite as radical as he was when he was young, uh, and nor am I, so I certainly, it's not for me to judge other people. Um, and for what it's worth, I don't think they were responsible for that bombing. But I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because I didn't ask. And the reason I didn't ask is because if you're involved with terrorists, you work on the need to know principle. If you don't need to know, don't ask. And it's very practical. It obviously protects the terrorists, because the fewer people who know what they've been doing or talk about what they've been doing, the better from their perspective, but it also helps you. Because once you know, you're in trouble. In some way, if you like, you're involved. And if people know that you know, you're in big trouble. So I never asked. 
And if that wasn't enough, I was also very heavily involved in the late 1970s, early 1980s, with the revival of the skinhead movement in England. I started a record label called White Noise Records. It was an appropriate name for a record label because it was white and it was noise. It's like punk music. Sorry if any of you out there like punk music, that's fine. Um, and the first record we released was by a band called Screwdriver. And again, for those of you with a morbid curiosity, if you go back home and Google Screwdriver, spelt with a K as in skinhead, you'll see all sorts of horrible things coming up, their music. But the first single they did on my record label was called White Power. And I did the guest vocals on that. And you're thinking, uh-oh, this is the cue for the song. And my part in that, in the chorus, was white power. That was it. <laughs> and after all these years, I can still remember the words <laughs> and can still sing it in tune. And on the B side, there was a song, song in, in the broadest sense of the word, a track called Smash the IRA. And I also did guest vocals on that, and my part in the chorus of that was smash, smash. And, then, and again, if you've got that morbid curiosity, just put smash the IRA by screwdriver in your Google or YouTube, and you'll see it. And you can even hear my dulcet tones. That was the beginning, and thanks be to God, the end of my rock music career. Now you're probably thinking, surely this young man had some endearing qualities. Well, I was also very anti-American. Didn't like Americans at all. Organized demonstrations outside US air bases. Yanks go home, and our members were fighting with the local US Air Force in the local pubs near um, US air bases such as Lake and Heath. So no, I didn't have many endearing qualities. The magazine I started when I was 16 years old, called Bulldog, was deliberately trying to incite racial hatred and to start a race war. And in 1982, for publishing Bulldog, I was sentenced to six months in prison for publishing material likely to incite racial hatred. And I was a fanatic, and as they dragged me off to the cells, I screamed at the judge that he would face his judgment. And I went to prison. I considered myself to be a political prisoner, a prisoner of war, a political soldier, all the language of the terrorists. I used my, gym as a, uh, used my cell as a gym, using my bed as a bench press to get myself in shape so that when I came out, I could be a better revolutionary, a better radical than I was when I went in. And I came out of prison, and I continued to edit Bulldog. But I wasn't in a great hurry to go back to prison again, and nor was I prepared to, to tone down the propaganda and the racism of the magazine. So the editor of Bulldog became 
a superhero called Captain Truth. And his picture was on the cover magazine, this masked man with a huge chest with a great big T on his chest, but Truth, Captain Truth. He was the new editor. Now, the British police force might not be the smartest in the world, but I think they began to suspect after a few months that Captain Truth didn't really exist and that perhaps I was still the editor. And working on this theory, in the middle of the night, they raided my house, woke me up, I was woken up by police breaking into my house, searching my house, finding all the evidence they needed to show that I was still indeed the editor of Bulldog. I was charged once again with publishing material likely to incite racial hatred and this time was sentenced to 12 months in prison. During the first prison sentence, I, sp I spent my 21st birthday in prison. The second prison sentence, I spent my 25th birthday in prison. There was, however, a huge difference between the two prison sentences. In the first prison sentence, I was a, a radical, I was full of hatred and bitterness, Beginning of the second prison sentence, I'm thinking, why am I here? I'm in prison for something I don't even really believe anymore. This is madness. And I'll talk more about the, the fact that I pr second day in the prison sentence was the first time I prayed. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But before we get there, I'd like to backtrack a little bit. And the question you should be asking, if you're not, you should be, well, what happened between those, two, between those two prison sentences to make that change? Well, I wasn't interested in religion, of course, except there's something to, to treat derisively and negatively. But I was, quite clearly, interested in politics. And we would get involved in fights on the streets with the extreme left, with the communists, the Marxists, and they would taunt us with slogans such as, you are just the stormtroopers of capitalism. And I'm a young, hot-headed radical, and my attitude was that, okay, I hate communism, but it doesn't mean I want the world being run by Bill Gates, by global corporations. Of course, Bill Gates wasn't around then, but global corporations were. Whoever the 1980s equivalent of Bill Gates was. Um, so I was looking for alternatives. I refused to accept the communist lie that they were the only alternative to the present system. So I was looking for alternatives, so-called third ways. And someone said to me, have you looked at the political ideas of G.K. Chesterton? And, of course, I hadn't, and anyway, who on earth is G.K. Chesterton? And I said, well, you really should read uh, a book by Chesterton, but you also should read this particular essay by Chesterton, and, it, and it's in the book called The Well and the Shallows. So, dutifully, I bought this book, and the essay was two-thirds of the way through the book, but I began reading on page one. My attitude was, well, if this Chesterton folk is that good that my friend says I really have to read him and I've just gone and bought this book, the rest of it should be worth reading as well. So I started from page one. And the rest of the book was a defense 
of the Catholic Church against modern attacks upon it, including the, 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 the new heresy of race. Um, this was published in 1935, so Hitler had come to power in Germany, uh, very much a hero of mine when I was younger. And I was reading this, and of course I, 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 I didn't agree with everything, of course not. But I couldn't help liking Chesterton. There was something about Chesterton's personality and his sense of humor, and he said enough things that were true, even if I disagreed with some of it, particularly the religious bit, there's quite a lot of that, actually, but, you know. Um, so I kept reading Chesterton. I went, used to spend hours looking through second-hand bookshops, book sorry, that's uh, used bookstores. I'm bilingual. I can do both languages. Um, hours picking up Chesterton books. And then one day, I was in that East London used bookstore, and my eyes fell on a book by someone called C.S. Lewis. And I'd heard of Lewis. I think I'd, fairly sure I'd heard of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That might have been the only reason I had heard of Lewis, actually, because that famous book. But I'd never read it, had no particular desire to read it. And for whatever reason, I felt... It, Tempted, inclined, just take the book off the shelf. And what I used to do in those days was go to the index and look for Chesterton's name. And if the author had said something good about Chesterton, I'd buy the book. Something bad about Chesterton, or nothing about Chesterton, put the book back on the shelf. Yeah, I was a bit of a Chesterton nerd by this time. I... So I was, for many, for many years, for several years, when I was giving this talk, I would say I looked in the index and saw the name Chesterton. And then someone pointed out to me this particular book by Lewis, which was surprised by joy, uh, did not have an index. So I couldn't have done that. So my memory was obviously wrong. But that makes it even more providential, coincidental, whatever word you want to use. Because what I must have done was take this book off the shelf and opened it at random by this writer who I even hardly knew who he was. And I opened it on the page in Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, which if, if those of you who have read it might know, it's his own conversion story. And it's about his first reading of Chesterton. And it's, while, it's during the First World War. And he's recovering in a, in a field hospital. He has time in his hands, and he picks up this book by Chesterton. And he said, you would have thought that Chester would be the, most, the least congenial of authors to me. Because I was, you know, I was an atheist. But in spite of that, I couldn't help liking Chester. I mean, yeah, that's it. Same as me. You know? And I liked his sense of humor particularly. Yeah, I agree. And then he says, and Chesterton seemed to have more common sense than all the moderns put together. Except, of course, his Christianity. I think, yes, exactly. Someone who likes Chesterton, but not the Christian part. This C.S. Lewis is, I've got to read more of this C.S. Lewis chat. So I buy the book. Of course, that book, Surprised by Joy, is Lewis's own conversion story. And a few years later, he reads Chesterton's The Everlasting Man and says that he 
there saw the Christian outline of history laid out before him for the first time in a way that made sense. So now, all right, so Lewis also becomes a Christian. Not sure about that, but can't help liking Lewis. So now, as well as buying all the books by Chesterton I get my hands on, buying all the books by Lewis I get my hands on, all the books by friends of Chesterton, such as Hilaire Belloc, that I could get my hands on. So by the time that the second prison sentence came along, I was confused. You can understand. But this person who starts off as a neo-Nazi, spent, by this time, uh, several years reading Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and other Christian authors. I talk about it as being sort of an, an arm wrestle going on in my head and in my heart as to what is the truth. And I had all this racism, all this bigotry, this anti-Christianity in there, in the mix. It was a war. So when I went to prison the second time, I was confused. I don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. Why am I here? And someone had given me during the court case, some rosary beads. Now, I knew what rosary beads were. My father, I actually got a lot of my anti-Catholicism from my father, used to call Catholics bead rattlers. That was his nickname for them. Look at those bead rattlers over there. Those sanctimonious so-and-sos. And also in Northern Ireland, there was a song. And yes, it is a I key myself up for another attempt at singing. Um, but there was a song we used to sing in Northern Ireland, anti-Catholic song uh, by these sort of terrorist groups, rather bizarrely to the tune of Home on the Range. But there we are. It's a strange world in which we live. And, the, and it went like this. No, no Pope of Rome, no chapels to sadden my eyes. No nuns and no priests, no rosary beads. Every day is the 12th of July. Say, so, so I, rosary beads, yeah, those Catholic things. And my mum's mum was Irish. And when, mom, when she died in 1969, my mum brought her rosary beads home. Now, I don't, my, none of my mum's Siblings were brought up as Christian even. They're agnostic. Um, but obviously, for whatever reason, her mother, although she didn't practice her faith as far as I'm aware, certainly didn't take the children to church, kept this rosary bead. So my mum brought it home, just as a keepsake, just as a memento for her, of her mother. But my dad came back from the pub one night this is all when I was a child, so just trying to get the context of about rosary beads in my imagination. Came out from the pub one night after having a few drinks and said, we're not having those papist beads in this house and threw them out the window. So I knew what rosary beads were from Northern Ireland, from my own upbringing. Here I am, second day of a 12-month prison sentence, confused, holding them. And I had no desire to throw them out the window. I mean, I could have done. My, my, my cell had bars on the windows. I couldn't climb out. It also had a window to open, so I could throw things out of it. But I had no intention to do that. What I wanted to do was to pray. 
for the first time in my life. Now, because I had no way of praying the rosary, because to pray the rosary, you need to know the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, the Apostles' Creed. Didn't know any of those. And the Our Father. And I had been taught the Our Father when I was about that high, that tall, but long since forgotten. So I had, there's no way I could actually pray the rosary. But what I did was to fumble the beads and mumble inarticulate prayers. And all I can say, it's the first time I'd ever prayed, all I can say is the answers started flooding in, healing started flooding in. I started to go to, to church services in prison for the first time. And when I got out of prison, I knew I had to, had to make a completely fresh start. You think, duh. <laughs> you know, bear in mind, I'm now 25 years old. I joined the National Front when I was 15. I had no friends who weren't in the organization. In the organization, I'm a hero and a martyr and a celebrity and hugely popular. Outside, I know nobody. So what I had to do was to physically leave London, move to a backwater, specially selected backwater where nobody ever goes, start a new life. And I was received into the Catholic Church on St. Joseph's Day, March the 19th, 1989. And unbeknownst to me, the priest had secretly got the, the ladies of the parish to bake a cake, well, you know, whatever it said on it. And there's a reception after the Mass. And I was asked to make a speech. And you'd have gathered, well, I write for a living and I speak all, all the time, that I'm not usually lost for words. This was basically the only time in my life I've ever been lost for words. Because the enormity of being received in the church was something that was beyond words. And all I could say was, I've come home. And quite frankly, he put me on the spot I'll talk about what I did in the past and how I got to here, as it were, but what exactly this is. I've come home. There's still nothing more I can say. I want to mention one other thing, because if I don't mention it, I always feel guilty, and then I want to have a quick, quick postscript before I finish. Um, my father, who I had a very, very close relationship to, and uh, it's, I talk about it quite a lot in the book, my father uh, was received into the Catholic Church 10 years before his death, and that, for me, seems to be a much bigger miracle than my own reception into the church. And by the grace of God, I, by the, I moved to the United States in 2001, actually four days before 9-11, but that's another story, um, so I was a long way from my dad, obviously. I went back once or twice a year, my mum. And 
by the grace of God, I was speaking at a C.S. Lewis conference in, uh, in Cambridge when my father was rushed into hospital. And Cambridge is only 60 miles from where my parents live, less than an hour and a half drive. So I had to cancel the talk I was giving. But what I knew was happening, and when I got back to the conference later, it was confirmed, the whole conference, three or four hundred on-fire Christians praying for my father. I mean, that's the grace of God. And the last time I saw him, about six hours before he died, we prayed the rosary together, and he received the Blessed Sacrament, tiny crumb, because he couldn't eat by this stage. That's a tiny crumb, and then washed down with some water. Um, so the postscript. The first book that I started to write after my conversion I knew I couldn't use my own name. Um, my prison sentences made national headlines throughout the UK. It was impossible to drive more than a few miles on any freeway in, the United, in England without Free Joe Pierce slogans on the bridges above the freeways. So my name was, I was infamous. So I knew that no one would touch anything I wrote with a barge pole. So I thought, I'm going to have to use a, a pseudonym. So I chose the name Robert Williamson. Now, why did I choose, choose, choose the name Robert Williamson? Well, because in the Orange Order, there's a song called The Old Orange Flute. And it's about an orange man. That's what I remember the Orange Order's called. I was an orange man. Those of you who have morbid curiosity, I can show you the secret handshake of the Orange Order later if you come and see me. It'd be very useful in uh, Plymouth, Minnesota. Um... But it's a song about an orange man who becomes a Catholic. It's very unusual. You know, one extreme to the other, if you like. So it goes like this. Sorry, not another song. But it's the last one, I promise. Um, in the county Tyrone, near the town of Dungannon, where many's a ruction, myself at a Hannon, Bob Williamson lived there, a weaver by trade, and all of us thought him a stout orange blade. But the cunning young crew boy sure took us all in. And he married a papish called Bridget McGinn. Turned papish himself and forsook the old cause that gave us our freedom, religion, and laws. Now the boys of the town, they made some noise upon it. And Bob had to fly to the province of Connaught. And so it goes on. So I thought, well, that's me. You know, I, I am Bob Williamson. I am the orange man who becomes a Catholic. So I adopted the name as my nom de plume, as my writing name. But of course, I wasn't literally Bob Williamson. I didn't, hadn't married Bridget McGinn from the county Tyrone in the town of Dungannon. But then I met a girl in Oxford, in England, and she's an American, from California, so is she an American? <laughs> she's not here, so I can get away with that. Um, 
So I met her, and again, if you said to me 10 years earlier, uh, you'd marry an American, I'd last you to scorn. So I met this wonderful American girl, and to cut a long story short, we got married. And her mother is from the county Tyrone, near the town of Dungannon. So I think that God has a sense of humor. And you think, that's a good joke, Bob Williamson, we can make that work. So I didn't marry Bridget McGinn, but I did marry Bridget McGinn's daughter. And you can work out, after I decided I was Bob Williamson, the statistical chances of meeting someone whose mother was born in the village just outside Dungannon in County Tyrone. The rock, the village is called, where she comes from. So to conclude, G.K. Chesterton, my first book as a Catholic, after my conversion, was a life of G.K. Chesterton. And I always say that that was and is an act of thanksgiving. An act of thanksgiving to God for giving me Chesterton. And an act of thanksgiving to Chesterton for giving me God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Thank you very much. We have had uh, many speakers over the last 12 years, but none who have spent uh, time in jail in uh, England <laughs> and gone to their first church service in prison. It, it's a reminder, actually, to me, honestly, as a pastor, of the importance of um, visiting those who are in prison as Christians. Uh, that's a little side note that I don't want to go off on a sermon here, but um, occupational hazard and all. Um, <laughs> We're going to let him rest his voice for a moment, and then, uh, again, you can come up and ask questions. I do want to mention a couple things. First of all, uh, our next event, the third in this year's series, is coming up in January. Uh, we'll let you get through the holidays. Um, Thursday, January 29th. Does anyone here know the artist Sarah Bareilles? Anyone? So our next uh, speaker is actually the drummer for Sarah Bareilles. His name is, is Stephen Gould. He's a drummer from the Twin Cities who has hit the big time uh, is a very thoughtful uh, young Christian man who's going to do something a little different. He's actually going to bring his drum set. He's going to play, but is he, he's also going to talk, talk with us about um, what it means to be a Christian no matter what you do. Uh, so I hope you can join us for that. If you would like to be alerted about events, please give us your email, uh, or you can sign up uh, online at faithandlife.org, or you can uh, like our Facebook page. All of those are very easy efficient ways for us to communicate with you. If you have ideas for future speakers, I invite you uh, to leave this green card with those names. We're always looking for uh, interesting, engaging speakers, so I hope you'll leave some of those uh, as well. And finally, uh, we are all here this evening thanks to the generosity of some amazing, wonderful people who have supported this series uh, year after year. 
faithfully uh, and, and generously, as well as some organizations. I'm not going to read their names, obviously, because there are a lot of them, uh, nor will I read tonight the names of the, or the companies that support the, the Faith and Life Lectures. But what you need to know is that this is not a budget item of this church. Uh, it is funded entirely through these uh, generous individuals and organizations. Many of them are here tonight. Would you help me say thank you to them? Okay, um, I'm assuming we have at least a few questions here, so Joseph, if you're going to come back up, uh, and if anyone has a question, you can come again, if you would, to the mics uh, on either side. And if not, we'll just sit in awkward silence. I've um, rendered all silent with shock. Um, I have two questions. What precipitated your wanting to join the National Front? And then also, since you were so anti-Catholic, what made you join the Catholic Church? Become a Catholic. Okay, um, well, <clears throat> basically in England, the first, I, I assume you all heard that, it was miked. Um, in England, in the 1970s, there was a lot of racial tension. 1976 in particular, which was the year that I joined the National Front, the mathematicians amongst you can now work out how old I was, or am, I should say, um, 15 in 1976. You can work that out now. Um, uh, there was a lot of, it was a very hot summer. People still talk about the summer of 1976. It's not like, you know, South Carolina where I live now. You get, you know, three days of sunshine in England. It's a heat wave. Um, but it, this was a, a, a very hot summer, and it seemed to, if you like, boil, set, set the blood boiling. There's a lot of racial violence in the area of London that I live, between the, the whites and uh, the immigrants, most of the immigrants in, in, in my area were from the uh, were Asians. Uh, when you say Asians in the United States, you, normally, you think about um, Chinese, but it's about people from the Indian subcontinent. So Pakistanis and Indians, Sikhs and Muslims, mostly. Um, so you know that I had friends who would shoot the windows out of the local Sikh temple and other friends, there was a group called the Dagnum Axe Clan that used to just go out. These were really weird. Um, they were actually Nazi hippies. So they would get high on LSD and then go out and, and, uh, on an orgy of racial violence. So there's just an awful lot of racial tension. Um, a, lot of, um, you know, a lot of demographic changes, a lot of resentment by the local population of the changes that were happening. My father was instrumental in, in bringing me up basically as, as, as a racist. I would have to say that I do talk about it in the book. My, you know, the trouble is, well, what I haven't done justice to my father is his many, many, many good, loving, and endearing qualities. You think, well, he's a racist, he's an anti-Catholic bigot, what's good about him? Well, believe me, he was a very, very good, loving man. I can't do justice to that, but if, you know, I'd maybe ask you to buy the book so you can see exactly. He's conflicted, but you know, many people are conflicted. So I basically, I was many ways, I wasn't a weirdo, it was actually very common for young white kids, teenage white kids in, in the working class areas of England at that time to get involved with the National Front. I mean, I think there were about 30 members of the YNF, the Young National Front, on my own uh, housing estate where I lived in, in London, for instance. Um, so that's the first question. Second, what, second question, as I was so anti-Catholic, why the Catholic Church, well, I think part of it's got a sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> I'm convinced God has a sense of humor. Um, 
But um, let me ask you a very quick answer to that. Just a very quick, as, as there are people queuing up to ask, ask, ask questions, I can get away with this. A little very quick theological aside. We made the image of God. And how we can de- tell what's the image of God in us is what it is in, in us that we don't share with the rest of the animal kingdom. Right, so one is love, to actually freely choose to lay down our lives for others. No greater love has any man, says Christ, than to lay down our life for our friends. So to love is to self-sacrifice. So to love, to reason. I mean, the Greek word for us was anthropos, he who looks up. You know, the cow grazes, man gazes. Right? He looks up at the heavens. What's the meaning of life? So love, reason, creativity, we've got a drama uh, next, art, creativity, you know, monkeys do not create art. They don't compose symphonies. They don't write novels. Creativity, God's the creator. God is goodness, love, uh, truth, reason, and beauty. Creativity. But he's also has a sense of humor. Because none of the animals laugh. Even hyenas don't laugh. Sounds like they do, but they don't. So, of course, humor is also something which we get from God. It's the image of God in us. So God has a sense of humor. And if we, really, if we can't look at ourselves and realize that, there's something wrong with us. But anyway, um, why, why Catholicism? Well, I think, I think really... Again, the book does more, um, more justice to this than I can. First of all, of course, Chesterton was the overarching influence on me. As I've, as I've said, Chesterton, of course, did convert to Catholicism. Um, but, of course, people such as C.S. Lewis were hugely influenced by Chesterton. And, oh, uh, you know, after Tolkien and maybe George MacDonald, probably uh, Chesterton was the biggest single influence on Lewis's conversion to Christianity. But Lewis didn't didn't convert to Catholicism. So you can be influenced by Chesterton and not necessarily become a Catholic. But I would think that the main reason is Chesterton and then other writers such as Belloc. During that second prison sentence, by the way, um, I read uh, John Henry Newman for the first time. I read uh, um, Thomas Aquinas for the first time. So, uh, so there's, that, there's that side to it. Um, the, other th- the other conversation stopper, by the way, I give lots of talks on Lord of the Rings. I'll actually give some talks in St. Paul uh, tomorrow on the Lord of the Rings, on, on the Christianity of the Hobbit and the Christianity of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien said, by the way, if you don't know, uh, Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. So that's uh, something for you to ponder. Come along to my talk tomorrow or something. But, um, uh, so I read, but this conversation stop, somebody says to you, if you you're, you're in Tolkien circles, when did you first read the Lord of the Rings? Oh, during my second prison sentence. Conversation stopper. <laughs> but, and I think there was, there was one other thing, I mean, there's other reasons, but there's one thing I, should, I, I tell, in the, tell in, the, in the book as well. When I was about 10, um, a friend of mine, a girlfriend, obviously not a girlfriend, I was 10, but yeah, <laughs> a friend who was a girl, for some reason got it in her head, she had this fixation about wanting to become a Catholic. I don't, I don't think anything ever came of it. She was 10, for starters. But, um, but she took me to the local Catholic church. 
in the town I was growing up in, there was only one Catholic church, but it was right opposite where we lived. You could see it from our front door. Never even entered my mind that I would ever want to go in it. I mean, didn't even think about it. But anyway, she ushered me in because this was her thing. And I went into the church, and I had a distinct feeling of a real presence. Um, and I didn't understand what that was. But, you know, the local Anglican churches are much, much better architecturally. Certainly historically, I mean, the Anglican churches were a thousand years old. Because I could say they were Catholic and they were taken, but we won't get involved in that discussion now. (laughs) But the point is, they're a thousand years old, perfect architecture, but there was something empty about them. As if they were shells. So there was this feeling. And of course, you know, I put it out of my head and my heart for years and years and years. But it came back to haunt me later. So I mentioned that in there as well, but... Yeah, so the other thing about it as well, of course, and this doesn't just apply to Catholicism, but my conversion to Christianity, is I was convinced for many years, until fairly recently, actually, until just a few years ago, in my ignorance, I was convinced that my conversion was entirely rational. Right? Because reading these great Christian philosophers, these great Christian writers, coming to realize the truth of Christianity rationally, an act of reason, a rational process, and that's true. There's nothing irrational about it, and, and, and all of that's true, but it was only half the picture. The other half that I didn't even realize until recently was healing. It's the grace of God healing me. Because, you know, some things such as racism and bigotry and prejudice are not necessarily rational to begin with. If they're not rational to begin with, it's difficult to reason your way out of them. So I realize now there was a healing process going on simultaneously with the rational process. But of course, one of the marks of being sick in this way is not knowing that you're sick. So even for years after my conversion, I was still, still thinking, yeah, I, I came, to, came to Christianity and Catholic Christianity through a complete process of reason. But now I realize there was this healing process going on simultaneously. I'm curious how you see racial tensions in the world today, given your background. And um, given that you were an instigator in the past, what do you do today, personally, to try and diffuse what's going on in the world? Thank you. Um, Well, basically, I think hatred and prejudice and bigotry are a product of the lack of Christianity. I mean, at the heart of the Christian, the two great commandments of Christ, to love the Lord thy God and to love thy neighbor. And the hardest commandment of Christ, to love thine enemy. Um, so as the world becomes less and less Christian, it's going to be becoming more and more hateful. And all sorts of hatreds are going to emerge, including uh, a resurrection of racial hatred. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that, because the answer is Christianity. And if we won't accept that answer, we're going to get the... The, uh, the alternative. Now, Hilaire Belloc said about Christianity, he said, outside is the night and strange things in the night. And we need to remember that the, you know, because you've got all the, the lies these days in the secular culture that religion causes wars. If you actually look at the three bloodiest regimes in human history, first of all, the French Revolution was an atheistic rejection of Christ. Then the communist revolution, an atheistic rejection of Christ. And the Nazis, an atheistic rejection of Christ. 
And what they gave us were the three G's, the guillotine, the gulag, and the gas chamber. That once you turn your back on Christ, you get hatred. You sort of came, came to Chesterton investigating his economic theory of distributism, and I've read your book, um, Small is Still Beautiful, uh, you know, an updating of E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, which is you know, applying Chestertonian economic uh, principles. Uh, what do you think of distributism now, and do you think it's an answer to some of the economic problems we have? I absolutely believe that, as my book, uh, Small is Still Beautiful, the subtitle of that was the Economics of Families Matter. Um, and so I believe absolutely in distributism. I think distributism is an ugly word. It's an unfortunate word. I wish they hadn't come up with that particular label. Uh, but as Chesterton and Bellock came up with it, we're stuck with it. I actually recently, I've been writing on it quite a lot on a, on a website. Um, so, um, you know, uh, yes, I do still believe it. But what the Catholic, Catholic Church's social teaching calls it subsidiarity. Um, I prefer that. Subsidi it's also an ugly word, but at least it means something. I mean, distributism, well, what's being distributed here? You know, I mean, it sounds like communism, but it, you know, because it's the bad word. But, it, uh, but subsidiarity basically is that the, the family should be the basic unit of economic and political life, that government has to get closer to the people. In other words, has to be smaller, not in terms of less government, we need less of that as well, federal government, but but, but local government needs to be stronger. In other words, we need, we need a, de a re-enriched democracy where actually local government has more power and federal government has less power. Um, so we actually get democracy back closer to the people, not further and further away from it. I mean, you see, in Europe, where I come from, the European Union now, one member of the European Parliament has several million people voting for that one constituency. Well, that's not democracy. Um, so we need, we need, we need, we need to, we need to re-evangelize democracy so we get it back again. And as regards economics, we need to do things to ensure that a large part, the largest possible part of our economy are small businesses and not global corporations. Um, so how, how do we practically come to that? Of course, my book comes with all sorts of practical ways that that can be done. And I, uh, I'm following, by the way, as you said, in the footsteps of E.F. Schumacher, who wrote a... A million seller. I mean, who's ever heard of a New York Times bestseller on economics? Well, it doesn't happen very often, uh, but in 1973, E.F. Schumacher published a book called Small is Beautiful. So my book, Small is Still Beautiful, is merely bringing those principles up to date. So I'm not pretending to be a, an economic guru. I'm a disciple of someone who is an economic guru. So that's a very brief answer, because that's really all I have time for in this context. But good question. You had mentioned something um, during your talk about when you first began to look at Christianity, after you'd been reading uh, uh, Chesterton. I'm curious about what were the conflicts that you experienced. Um, you, you did s say in a moment ago about the rational dynamic, but I, I have to believe that there's some other deeper things of conflict that were going on inside of you. I'm interested in what that might have been for you. Well, um, obviously, if someone's full of hatred, there's all sorts of anger in there, and if that, that's obviously, uh, could, could be called conflict. So I'm a very angry young man, but I am also genuinely looking for answers. I mean, I, I was, uh, you know, you have to believe this, I was an idealist. 
You know, I, I, I believed in the politics I believed in because I thought it was the, the right answer. Um, of course, I was wrong, <laughs> but I, I believed it was right. Um, so I was looking for the truth, and I think, I think that, that was genuinely uh, the, 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 probably the principal animating feature. And of course, at first, you know, I read Chesterton, and I'm still absolute sort of neo-Nazi, but Chesterton ideas started to creep in, mostly just the political ones. But then I actually quite liked the humility and the humor and the goodness. Well, and then you start to get towards the religious side of things, you know? So it was a, a growth, basically, whereas at first it was just a little bit of Chesterton I liked, and then it was more of Chesterton. It's always enough to, to keep wanting to read more. But I, I certainly don't think that it was a, something that could be crudely called psychological or anything like that, or Freudian. Um, uh, except, of course, that we're all made in the image of God, and, when, and as St. Augustine says, we're restless until we rest in thee. You know, that ultimately no mind or heart is at rest until it finds the truth, and the truth is in God. So, you know, if someone's genuinely looking for the truth, they're going to be restless. And I was restless because I was looking for the truth, and by the grace of God, I found it. Yeah, I think they want you to come to the mic. Well, I have no problem with that as long as... <laughs> Very, very good question. Uh, again, all of these are great questions that's difficult to encapsulate in a two-minute response, which is all we can do. Um, I love, first of all, I love Chesterton's the co combination between humor and humility. And I love just the pure goodness of the man. But he has a very aphoristic wit. So, you know, what Ronald Knox said, another convert, um, that Chesterton's, plat Chesterton's aphorisms became the platitudes of our thought, talking about his generation, right? That his aphorisms became the platitudes. So I, I ended up just, whatever the situation was, Chesterton just says something about it. Let me just give you one example, just because this is the charm of Chesterton, right? And I think this will give you an indication of why I find him so charming. He said, one of his, one of his aphorisms, is, he said, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. You know, and I, when I first heard that, I was infuriated. I was, uh, you know, angry with Chesterton. That's nonsense. My father always taught me, if a thing is worth doing at all, it's worth doing well. How can Chesterton be talking this utter nonsense? And then, of course, you realize it's not a question of one being true and the other not being true. It's a question of them both being true. And it's also a question that if you don't do things badly, you're never going to do them well. I use the analogy, I'm going to, I'm going to be, be uh, provocative now with my Chelsea tie and I talk about the only real football. <laughs> uh, you know, the greatest footballer in the world, greatest football player in the world, from, say Brazil, should we mention names, from, uh, Lionel Messi from Argentina, when he was two years old, made his parents laugh when he kicked the football and fell over it. He's a toddler. He said it was, that was hilarious. Because Lionel, Lionel Messi began playing football badly and got better at it. And what's true of football is true of faith. It's true of the life in faith. It's true of the life of virtue. Of course we've got bad habits. Now we have, we have, we have, we have a choice. Well, I, I, if I can't do this well, there's no, no point doing it at all. And we don't go to church any longer. 
Or we carry on as miserable sinners and still go to church because going to church is good for us and we keep trying to get better at the things we don't do well. So we do things badly so that we can do them better. Now, it's a perfect example of that Cheston sort of throwing something out. You know the thing? Sometimes he says, Cheston, we have to stand on our heads so that we can see them. What on earth is that about? <laughs> but what he's saying is that ultimately that if we, we, we see things so often, like, for instance, the beautiful sunset we had this evening, right? We see things so often, we don't look at them. We don't notice them. And sometimes we have to stand on our head to see them from a new angle, to see them fresh, with new eyes, for the first time, to be startled back into beauty. And then Chester says that when that happens, sometimes you realize for the first time in your life, you think, you thought you were standing on your head, but now you're actually standing the right way up. And the whole of your life you'd been on your head. And that's conversion. Let's do one final question here. First of all, <clears throat> thank you for coming. Uh, I've been reading a lot of your work for quite some time. It's, it's tremendous. Thank you. Um, quickly, I want to say something about Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton, I'm a Catholic convert. Chesterton was instrumental in my conversion. I will say that with Chesterton, what I find very interesting is he debated George Bernard Shaw. He debated the likes of, I think, Bertrand Russell and I think Clarence Darrow at one point and so on. And the long and the short of it is history has borne out what Shaw and Wells and Bertrand Russell and all those other guys said, but they've been relatively mute on what Chesterton said. And when you go back and read what he said, it's extraordinary what he said and the truths he had. So thank you for publicizing it. Your book, Wisdom and Innocence on Chesterton, is, is fantastic. Um, I just want to say this. I, I'm amazed that you're so young. Because I look at what you've had, I, I, I look at what you've, I look at what you've had in your life. I like li- this man. He gets my vote. <laughs> I look at what you've done in your life up to this point with all of the uh, frustrating and harrowing experiences you've had. Um, but then, if people are aware of what you've written on Tolkien, on on Chesterton, on Belloc, on Shakespeare, um, it's the the, the the literary giants of the faith. It's extraordinary what you're doing. And I guess what I'm, my question ultimately is here is this. If you were to identify, and I know you, it's hard to encapsulate it, if you were to identify five seminal works of all these people you've covered in your recent works, Belloc, Chesterton, and so on, but five works that everybody here, if you have a minute on Amazon, should go and pick up these five and read them, what would they be? <laughs> Nice, easy question to finish with. Um, first of all, thank you very much for, for that advertisement for my work. A- advertisement, I can speak both languages. Um, one thing on Chesterton very quickly, and then I'll try to come up with five very quickly at random, which, won't be the, which I'm going to disagree with my own list about ten seconds after I say it. But um, One of the, the marks of Chesterton's sanctity is he, he you mentioned all the people he argued with. Chester was first published in 1900. He died in 1936. He spent the whole of his life arguing with the people you mentioned, with H.G. Wells, numerous other people. And he said of his relationship with his brother, he said, we were always arguing, but we never quarreled. And Chesterton, the 36 years of arguing, never made a single enemy. So much so that people like H.G. Wells said that, that if there is a God, I will get into heaven because of the prayers of G.K., well, no, because I was a friend of G.K. Chesterton. And that's someone who was very hostile to Christianity for the whole of his life. So that's the Mark of Chesterton's sanctity. Now, five books. Now, the problem with that question, five books, 
is, you know, I could ask you more questions. What, five books that every Christian should read because of the importance of their Christianity? Or five, the five greatest works of literature anybody should ever read? I mean, you know, so, um, so I'm going to answer five greatest works of literature that everybody should ever read. Um, because every Christian, as you said, the mark of God, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And that literature always speaks of the good and the true through the medium of beauty. So definitely The Lord of the Rings. Definitely anything by Shakespeare, but let's say Hamlet. Um, um, uh, definitely Pride and Prejudice. Now put up your hands if you've read Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. All right, put them down again if you're a girl. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice is a girly book that every man should read because it tells us about women, and that's quite helpful. <laughs> and she's also a great Christian, a great philosopher, so I'd say Pride and Prejudice. Um, yeah, where does one start? There's a wonderful poem everyone should read called The Wreck of the Deutschland by Gerard Manley. In fact, anything by the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins you should read. Brilliant poet. Um, and who else? Uh, well, I've got to say something by Chesterton now, haven't I? Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. And my favourite novel of Chesterton's is, um, is uh, um, the, ball, ball, the Ball and the Cross. But if you want to be heavy Christianity, Confessions by St. Augustine, Absolute Essential, The City of God by St. Augustine, Summa Theologica by St. Thomas Aquinas, which won't take you long to read, it's only whatever, <laughs> the rest of your life. Um, yeah, do, do, do what I did in prison, take the shortened version, the condensed version for beginners. Um, maybe Chesterton's Everlasting Man and ah, good question just finish quickly how about to finish off with um, how about John Henry Newman's Apologia there we are thank you very much you got to watch Thank you again for coming out on a cold night. Uh, Joseph, thank you for joining us. I've got a small gift for you. It's a piece of granite uh, that just says, with thanks to Joseph Pierce for bringing faith to life. We do thank you for being with us very, very much. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs>